Hello and welcome to The Phenomenon Report. I'm Kelly Kleinman. Tonight my guest is Paul Hynek. You may know the name because his father was none other than J. Allen Hynek, best known for his work as the lead investigator for the original Project Blue Book. Now, recently we've all been watching two seasons of the History Channel's scripted adaptation of Project Blue Book, starring Aidan Gillen as Paul's father. Now, Paul is a buddy of mine, and the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree. That would be the fruit of intelligence. He's a smart dude. He graduated from Wharton. Congratulations on that one, Paul. He's also an adjunct professor at Pepperdine University. Welcome to the Phenomenon Report. Hi, Kelly. Pleasure to be here. Uh, glad to have you. Now, I grew up with a dad who sold blue jeans and some other items. Uh, you grew up with a dad who was the face of the U.S. government's first public investigation of UFOs and possible alien interaction with our planet. Granted, you were born long after the project closed, but what was it like growing up with a dad that had such an incredible job? And tell us what kind of guy J. Allen Hynek was, and was he accurately portrayed in these series? Okay, so let's unpack that. So I was born actually during Blue Book, um, although maybe it doesn't look like it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, really, however you grow up is normal to you, whether good or bad, until you have the benefit of hindsight to look back and be able to compare it. And now my four siblings and I, when we look back at it, we realize it really was a fantastic upbringing. Our parents were awesome. They weren't perfect, but they were wonderful. Um, and it was a very intellectually stimulating house. I mean, some of my earliest memories are flying saucer ornaments on the Christmas tree, Father Gill from the Papua New Guinea case coming over for dinner, or Travis mm -hmm. Walton, or talking to oh, Calvin really? Parker. Um, and, you know, my father was an astrophysicist and a professor of astronomy who had a late life side hustle with UFOs. That's how I think he'd like to be portrayed. So, first and foremost was instigating or inculcating in us a sense of the mystery and the magic of science and the scientific method to be curious and to have sort of a method with how to investigate your curiosity. Um, Aidan Gillen, my good friend uh, now from the show, doesn't portray my father accurately, nor did he try, but he tries to do an authentic representation of the core of my father's character when placed in highly stretched circumstances. Right, okay. Do you remember where you were and what you thought when you found out that your dad was involved with ufology on a real serious and deep level? I was probably uh, being nursed. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't remember a time in life before uh, UFOs. I mean, I, I grew up with them as part of the fabric of our lives. It's, it's really amazing. You know, my father had a copy of Project Blue Book. I read that. Uh, I was also turned on to UFOs, uh, a book called Flying Saucers Are Real by uh, Donald Kehoe. Kehoe. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, had a huge inspirational uh, uh, lift for me. Um, now, uh, I also saw the, uh, the book by Eric Von Donegan, uh, Ancient Astronauts and Such. So I've been obsessed with the subject ever since I was a little kid myself but nothing like with you and your dad. Now, he was an astronomer at the Ohio State University, my college. I went to Ohio State, go Bucks, always. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> uh, before he got on board with Project Blue Book, he worked with the Air Force on Project Sign, which was also a UFO investigation project, and that was in 1948. Was Project Sign some kind of a threat assessment follow-up to the Roswell crash, 
Why did they choose him and what were his conclusions on the data he collected specific to that project? All right, so let's start at the beginning. I don't know, so there were three projects. There was Project Sign, which was pretty honest, then Project Grudge, which was right. not, and Project Blue Book, which was not either. Um, I don't know how much of an impact Roswell had on them because Roswell didn't really enter the public zeitgeist until the 70s. It had nowhere near the cultural impact um, that it does now. So I don't know how much of an impact Roswell did, uh, had on this. Yeah. Um, and I forgot the rest of it. Well, yeah, it was, I was just curious as to what his assessment was on uh, the data that he had collected. And how, how he got involved, right. Exactly. So I've actually read some conspiracy websites that say because my father worked on the proximity fuse in World War II, and had top security clearance, that there was a lot of stuff going on. I think it was simpler. My father, like you said, was at Ohio State, and Wright-Patterson is not far. They needed an astronomer because the military really likes to be cloaked in academic legitimacy. So they wanted a, a credentialed astronomer to come along and say, hey folks, nothing to see here, please disperse, we got this. So I don't think they had to look too hard and far and I think my father was probably the closest warm-bodied astronomer they could find. This is sort of an aside, but it's related because of the, the time frame. Um, did he investigate the crash of the decorated World War II pilot, uh, Captain uh, Thomas Mantell, whose P-51 crashed um, after pursuing a UFO? Because that, that got big headlines, as did in 1952. We'll get into that here in a minute. Um, the uh, UFO flap over Washington, D.C. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't no offhand, but I, I imagine he did. I mean, I certainly know of that case. Um, and certainly he did uh, the, the flap in, in DC. Um, he was sent pretty much everywhere to every case that I have heard of. So I can try to look in some papers and find out more, but I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. Um, now in 1952, uh, Project Blue Book was rekindled. It was basically a uh, project uh, sign beforehand, right? Um, why did the Air Force bring it back as a public facing investigation? And do you think it started out with noble intentions, but was redirected into a disinformation campaign to debunk and dissuade um, reporting of UFOs uh, after the Robertson panel convened in 1953? That's a really good question. You know, it certainly evolved into a public relations exercise to tamp down hysteria about flying saucers. Yeah. Um, and there was clearly a bifurcation in 1953 after both the Robertson panel and the creation of the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, which was a sort of rapid response team that had the mission of getting to any crash site of any kind in the continental United States within six hours. And they each had Russian speakers on their team as well, because they didn't know what would be crashing. <laughs> and some people think they're the origin of the men in black, because they would want to contain both the damage, but also the sort of perceived vulnerability that a crash site might engender. Um, whether Blue Book, I don't think Blue Book was started with what we would call noble intentions because with Project Sign and the, and the controversial estimate of the situation in 1948, which basically said, hey, UFOs are real. Yeah, yeah. Project Grudge came along and said, no, 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 this is all a bunch of crap, nothing to see here. I think Project Blue Book started from that sort of soup. Yeah. So I don't think it was ever meant to be an honest scientific exploration, um, which I think is what you mean by noble. From yeah. the Air Force point of view, you know, their job is to project superiority in the air. 
prevent against the projection from our foes, but also create the perception amongst the populace that they ha that they're, have everything under control. So yeah. part of their mission is to make people think there's no danger from UFOs. So it was noble for them, just unfortunately not noble for a scientist like my father who wanted to let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. So here's the timeline, and you can fill in the blanks here. Uh, 1952, uh, Project Blue Book was reinstated, so to speak, right? Uh, from Project Sign. It evolved. Yeah. Okay. Later that year, the Robertson panel came into uh, into the fold, and in 50, early 53, I believe it was late January, they had a meeting. Um, it was originally, I, I believe, created um, on a recommendation from the Intelligence Advisory Committee, the IAC, in December 52. And, and CIA, I, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> uh, into looking into the UFO uh, phenomenon. Um, and basically decided that UFOs needed to, de to be debunked, as you had mentioned, and to quell public fear due to the Cold War circumstances and the simple fact that objects of unknown origin are now flying with impunity over our skies. So then yeah. you mentioned that tactical um, uh, attack force. Uh, uh, Air Intelligence Service Squadron. Exactly. So it all sort of fits in kind of nicely, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the, the flap in Washington, D.C. Yeah. That's depicted in episode 10 of season one of the show Project Blue Book. So and you have someone representing Truman. In reality, Truman scrambled fighter jets for UFOs over Washington, D.C. And these are not like low-flying helicopters like we know of recently. These are objects that scared the Air Force enough to make the president make the call to scramble fighter jets to shoot them down. They actually have photos of them traveling in formation. Yeah, it, it, it's an amazing case. Yeah. Uh, was your dad part of the Robertson panel? Yes, he was an associate professor. And one of the things that was frustrating for him, like the Condon Committee in 1969, which is sort of the cover with which the Air Force used to close down Project Blue Book, mm -hmm. was that um, they were not interested at all in an honest investigation. And so my father was not really allowed to speak, but they were not giving, they were giving short shrift to everything and not picking the most interesting, well-developed and supported cases. And they, you know, the fix was in. They just wanted to say, there's nothing here. So it was not a scientific exercise of any kind whatsoever. It was a mere formality for them to be able to say, there's nothing to UFOs. Before we get into some of those cases, Paul, um, I wanna know how your father evolved from the days of Project Science to Blue Book. What was the, uh, was it the fact that Blue Book was allowing him to get into the field um, and, and actually investigate actual cases as opposed to just looking at data sets? Or was he actually in the field of Project Sign as well? Yeah, he was involved with all three projects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people classify his sort of character arc as debunker or skeptic to believer. And I, I don't think believer is a great word for a scientist. Scientists don't really believe he, over time, he certainly came to accept the weight of the accumulated data, and he changed his mind. But it didn't really mean that he, you don't really believe in evidence so much. You just sort of accept the evidence. So he started off thinking there was nothing to it, that it was a post-war fad. But when he saw case after case with high strangeness and highly credible witnesses, often backed up with corroborating witnesses or radar or film, um, you know, military witnesses, Air Force pilots, who the Air Force had trained, who they can't really well deny. 
when you see those mount and you see common patterns all around the world, all different kinds of people, many people who have nothing to gain and really don't want to be known at all for this, it, it becomes too much for what he felt an honest scientist to just dismiss. Mm -hmm. And so by the 60s, he'd seen so many cases that he was called a convert, you know, someone who, who readily accepted that there's something going on with the phenomena. Now that something is a completely different matter altogether. What that, you know, what the origin of them, of UFO sightings or the origins are. What were some of the cases that started to change his mind into thinking that there's something highly unconventional going on? Was it the Lonnie Zamora, New Mexico State Trooper case uh, that was the turning point? Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say unconventional, but credible. credible. Um, and Lonnie Zamora was a great case in Socorro in 1964. And I just got pictures from Socorro from the landing site yesterday from a friend. Um, tell tell the people tell the people about what happened over there in New Mexico uh, <clears throat> on that strange day. So Lonnie Zamora was a you know salt of the earth police sergeant who was out on patrol, came over a hill and saw like an oblong egg-shaped craft that had landed on the ground and there were creatures walking around. And you know, understandably, this shook him. And he called in to have more people come. By the time they came, it's gone. But they saw very strange markings, like radioactive burn marks on the ground. And other people saw it in the sky as well. And my father went there to investigate right away. And you know, he was really taken by uh, Lonnie Zamora's credibility and his veracity. You know, my, my father would never say, oh, yes, that case happened. He would say, as a scientist, how the hell would I know? I'm not there. But I believe that Lonnie Zamora, in this case, believes he, see, he saw what he claims to have seen. And he just thought that was a really good case. You know, when you have policemen and Air Force pilots, not only are they, do they tend to not embellish, but they tend to remain calm in this most traumatic of times in their life. And they have these checklists that they go through. And so they make for really compelling and very credible witnesses. So by that time, it was maybe the straw that broke the camel's back. He'd already seen other cases, but that was yet another really solid case that made him feel this evidence is just too strong to deny. What were some of the other solid cases? And then did he have any relationship with Ronald Reagan? I don't know if he had any relationship or communications with Reagan. Um, one other case that was really uh, compelling to him was Father Gill, who I mentioned briefly in passing, um, uh, who in 1959 was an Anglican missionary in Papua New Guinea. And one night he hears this commotion outside. He goes outside and there are 500 of the New Guineans looking in the sky. He looks up and he sees a craft. And he was, talk about good witnesses, he was writing contemporaneous notes in a notepad while he's viewing the craft. Mm. And he's taking like trigonometric, trigonometric calculations to determine how far and how high it is. Um, and there's 500 witnesses altogether. And at one point, there's like a hatch that opened up on the craft and these creatures came out. Father Gill instinctively waved at them in peace and they waved back. And then um, 
there's not much more of the sighting that day. There's a bit more of a sighting the next day. And I think there was a radar corroboration somewhere in the country as well. But um, I met Father Gill. He came over for dinner. Mm. And this is years later. And his story remained very consistent. And by this point, I had sort of learned from my father how to not interrogate, but how to talk to a witness and try to ferret out the truth. And he really checked all the boxes for a great witness. Very intelligent, very calm and in the moment. And, you know, uh, happy in his own skin. Nothing to gain from the experience. Not eagerly volunteering, but not holding it back. Mm -hmm. And just not casually, but matter-of-factly relating what happened without editorializing, without getting sensationalistic, just describing almost like a reporter's point of view what happened. So that was just a really good case with a lot of corroboration and a very, very good witness. Legit blow by blow. You know, it reminds me of two other cases, one that didn't get all that much press. Both of these cases should have. One was a schoolyard sighting in Melbourne. And another one was a schoolyard uh, sighting in, in, at the time, Rhodesia, outside of Johannesburg. Yeah, right. Which are substantial cases, which we're going to get into um, on another show. I've already started working on that one. Uh, fascinating stuff. Now, um, he had some tenuous relationships with some of the people he worked with. He must have. Um, was his relationship with the Air Force itself tenuous? And what were his general feelings towards cohorts like uh, Edward J. Ruppelt, uh, Captain's Hardin, Gregory, and as well as Major's uh, friend in Quintanilla. Yeah, so um, of all of those, he had the most respect for Ruppelt and Friend, and of those two, the most for Friend, um, who was the who was there for about three years. Um, and I met Robert Friend, the last surviving Air Force Director of Project Blue Book, not long ago, and was there for his 99th birthday party. <laughs> Wow. And I asked him, he was, he was an American hero, and we did some filming of him for background for Project Blue Book. Um, not only did he work on Project Blue Book, uh, he worked on the space shuttle. He flew 150 missions as a Tuskegee Airman. This guy is a true American hero. Um, and I asked him, you know, because he, wouldn't, he, he, took, he took these oaths seriously of secrecy. And I asked him, as your partner's son, did you ever see anything super compelling? He got these sparkles in his eyes and he looked at me and he said, yes. And that's all he would say. That's really all I needed to hear. Yeah. So yeah. now even with him, and he became very good friends with my father and they respected each other very much. Even with him, which is the best luck of the draw you could get, you are going to diverge. So for example, the first thing you both want to do from a scientific and military point of view is determine, is this case legitimate? If it's not, okay, move on to the next one. If it's legitimate, right away, you start having different interests. As a scientist, how can I prove it? How can I replicate it? How can I match it with other patterns and data? As a Air Force guy, your question is, does it pose a risk to national security? Which is what your job should be. So even with the best possible person as your partner, you are, once a case is, is determined to have potential legitimacy, you're going to be working someone across purposes. Now, that was with a good apple. There were bad apples who didn't care about UFOs, who viewed this posting as Siberia, and they wanted to get out of there. And we're told by their superiors, look, we're not here to find answers. 
we're here to provide solutions. You know, we just need to provide, we need, we need to stamp it as solved. And mm -hmm. even with that huge impetus to always explain things away, of the 12,000 odd cases they investigated, still they came back and said 5% were unknown. It's quite a few. Yeah, that's more than 700, even when they wanted to explain every single one and they intentionally didn't investigate ones that they thought they couldn't explain. Along those lines, in the mid-60s, UFO reports kept coming in um, and conventional explanations at least attempted to match them, uh, citing for citing, including the famous uh, swamp gas explanation, right, which uh, former President Gerald Ford was involved with. Now, allegations of cover-ups and demand for congressional hearings uh, soon took place. What happened at those historic hearings, and was that the last straw uh, for your father with Project Blue Book? Yeah, so Swamp Gas, um, and I actually found video of the press conference where he's talking about Swamp Gas recently. We'll send that to me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he's saying that Swamp Gas was a partial explanation for part of the totality of the sightings, not for the whole thing. Um, but um, hmm. that was an unfortunate case because the press ran with that, and that was kind of a low point uh, for my father. But that wasn't the sort of last straw with Project Blue Book. You know, by that point, he was resigned to the fact that the Air Force wasn't a scientific research outfit. And he had debates with um, <clears throat> various folks um, saying, why would you stay there? You're, you're sort of legitimizing their efforts. And he said, well, look, if I stay here, even though it's not science per se, I do have some influence over which cases we investigate and how they're investigated and what the reports say. And that's valuable to have, you know, to have a front row center seat to this history. So I can use that information later, which he did. So he was content to ride it out. And even after they disbanded Project Blue Book, there was still some kind of consulting relationship. So it wasn't, you know, away you go, Heineck, and don't ever come back. It wasn't like that. Um, and it wasn't until 1969 where they really disbanded Blue Book that all that came to an end. What did he do when it came to an end? Did he just go back to teaching astronomy? Yeah, he was still a full bird professor at the time. Yeah. When did he finally get out of, when did he retire? Uh, from university in, 19, in 1976. 1976. So let's get into the fun stuff now, okay? Let's get okay. into the fact that he, well, I think it's all fun, frankly. It's unbelievable. I mean, I'm, it's probably you and a couple of us other geeks that got teary-eyed when they did his cameo on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. I still get that way, by the way. I don't know if I've ever told you that. But he coined the term Close Encounters of the Three Kinds. Explain to us what they are. I mean, there's a lot of UFO geeks such as myself who are watching this show right now. Explain to all of us what they are. I think they're up to five now. It could be at least. Uh, I, I've seen like nine, yeah. Nine, um, nine. Stephen Greer with five, yeah. So... Yeah. But then, but then when he got the call from Steven Spielberg, what was the vibe around the Heineck house? <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess you could say my father's like the UFO accountant because he figured out the classification system. And I think the crucial insight my father had was that he was not studying UFOs. He was studying UFO reports. And so if you're studying UFO reports, you really want to put a scientific rubric over them so that people can kind of compare apples to apples and, and, and look at and, and the patterns in the data. So close encounters of first kind is a sighting, uh, you know, less than 500 feet. 
of the second kind is some kind of physical trace, and a third kind is you see or perceive perhaps some kind of entity. So, um, and, and, and I think you'd be very gratified to hear that people are still using that. It's not just in the vernacular, but it's still used by ufologists, sure. uh, and people have built on that. So I think that's very helpful. Um, you know, he was uh, skeptical at first when he first started in Spiel first started talking to Spielberg, you know, my father had to walk a really three-dimensional tightrope between three very different groups to whom he felt he had some responsibility. The Air Force and the military and the government is one camp. Then you had mainstream scientists as another very distinct group. And then you had UFO believers, right? Very different sorts of people. And I think my father felt he had to keep each of those groups mildly unhappy. And then he's doing a good balancing act. <laughs> Now, so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, when Hollywood comes calling and saying, We want to do a movie about this, as a professor who is mindful of his academic reputation, you know, you don't immediately go, Yes, you're like, Okay, let's sort of talk this out. And he became more and more comfortable with Spielberg. I met Spielberg during filming. Um, he became more and more comfortable. And indeed, he was very happy with the final result. A lot of the things that happened, such as the sighting where the UFOs go through the toll booth, that happened between Ohio, the Buckeye State, and Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, and like burning on the face and, and electromagnetic charges, things like that. And my father was very happy with the movie because he felt that it portrayed um, not only sightings of UFOs, but why he called his book the first book, The UFO Experience, and why we call them now experiencers, because there's so much more in the reports than just the sighting of a craft. There are reports, mind you, of communication sometimes before, during, and after the actual visual sighting. And if you talk to a lot of UFO witnesses, as I'm sure you have, the actual viewing of the ship is often nowhere near the most important aspect of what they take away from the overall experience. Mm. Well, tell us about his classic cameo. It was sort of an inside baseball for a lot of U.S. Uh, a lot of us UFO researchers. It might sound corny. I just mentioned even I got teary-eyed uh, viewing him, and of course seeing the aliens. It was fantastic experience for everybody. It still is to this day. I have the same same emotional uh, output whenever I see the movie. Um, yeah. You had a cameo in episode six of season yeah. two. Yes. Right. Tell us about that irony. <clears throat> okay, right. So my brother Joel and I are consultants on Project Blue Book. And so we've been brought in to read the scripts and give input. I've been to the set three times and done a lot of publicity with the cast and the producers and have become good friends with all of them. And, you know, and let me just dispel the rumor and say right now, categorically, it is not super creepy at all to have the Game of Thrones super villain play your TV father is just fine. And he's a very good actor and a very sweet person. Yeah. Um, so that day, yes, we were um, recreating the set of Close Encounters. And my cameo is the very last shot of the episode. TV mom and TV dad are walking towards the camera talking. And you see this guy, ruggedly good looking, uh, <laughs> sitting in the chair of a camera crane being lifted in the air. Um, and I think I really nailed it just by sitting there and it, it sort of closes on me and fogs out. So yeah. what's fun is 
I had a cameo role in the show about my dad in the episode about my dad's work in which he had a cameo. Mm, just uncanny. So <laughs> I've got to get a picture. You're, I, I don't know if you did. You may have said, you, yeah, I think you did send me the picture. Yeah. Uh, you on the crate. Yeah. So that'll go up to uh, once we edit this all out. So biggest question of all. Okay. What did J. Allen Hynek conclude after three decades or more of researching UFOs and alien encounters? What did he think? What did he conclude? What did he come up with? What the hell's going on in his mind? Okay. Um, UFOs exist. And, and obviously, tautologically, the U just means unidentified. But there's, there's something to the phenomena that deserves study. Now, I talked about the origin. He did not believe that much of the phenomena was explained by extraterrestrial provenance. There's problems. There's non-trivial problems with extraterrestrial hypothesis. They have to go vast distances and tweak Einstein in the nose. Um, we have very sensitive instruments to detect objects entering and leaving our atmosphere. We don't have the reports that correspond with all the sightings. And their craft exhibit a lot of comfort in our Earth, gravity, and atmosphere. So these are fairly big problems to get past. Plus, I mentioned there's other aspects of the phenomena besides this viewing a ship. So he and Jacques Vallée, his good friend, and now my friend, mm -hmm. and many others started thinking there might be more to the phenomena than just extraterrestrial. And they almost had the feeling like, if we get to the bottom of this and it's only extraterrestrial, we'll be disappointed. Yeah. So he started thinking about interdimensional and time travel and other things that might explain, A, how somebody could get here because they're already kind of like here adjacent, um, but also why they would care. I mean, the universe is so vast. And if you are 3,000 light years away, first of all, how do you find us? And then second of all, why do you care either way what we're doing? Because if you can come here, we are clearly not a threat to you. Yeah. And you can have, if you can come here, you've got unbounded intellectual capacity and you don't need us for entertainment um, and I don't, I don't think that they were here because they needed water or gold or were interested in our concept of human love or are worried because we're on the threshold of nuclear power. So yeah. I, I agree with my father that the extraterrestrial hypothesis could be part of this. This could be a multivariate solution, but uh, I just don't think it explains all of it. Yeah, I have a new theory that there is life in the ocean and water. There's life on land and that there are photoluminescent life forms that we don't know about, consciousnesses that exist in our atmosphere that, again, could be photoluminescent. Uh, we just, there's no way we could really capture them, stick them in a bottle or, you know, behind some bars and study them. Uh, but they could possibly feed on radiant energy, uh, gas. I mean, there's a number of different, you know, possibilities there. Uh, but that's something that's crossed my mind as of recent. Uh, but that's the Kelly Kleiman theory. I'm still working on it. Um, well, those are USOs, right? Unidentified submergible objects. Well, that would be the ones in the, well, I'm talking about life forms, just, just life, okay. forms, you know, specifically that are photoluminescent. And people have been taking, friends of mine have sent me videos that they took from the beach in Orange County of like bioluminescence right by the shore. Oh, yeah, yeah. We went out and saw it ourselves. Yeah. But bioluminescence, you know, is, is common. And so you have also photoluminescence and you have, you actually have animals that live on land that also have some 
luminescent qualities to them you know, with the eyes and such. Uh, why, not, why not in the air? Why not in the atmosphere? Why not living off of plasma or whatever? I, I, I'm still playing around with it, but I'm sure. There's some kind of natural terrestrial phenomenon. Yeah, they, they live in the, in the atmosphere. They don't, you know, they could, because you see a lot of, you hear a lot of stories, oddly enough, even with Bigfoot sightings, people in the woods, and then they see small orbs, almost like the Foo Fighters of World War II, moving through the woods. And you're wondering, what the hell are those? And, and they actually can move through people. And they're wondering, well, what, what is that? It, it's probably, I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be an, an alien entity. It seems like it would be something that's very um, Earth-oriented. And the question is, what is it? We may never know. We just may not oh. be able to, you know, we may not be able to ever capture, capture them, let alone properly investigate what the hell they are. But it, it would right. be, you know, it's a theory. Um, what have the last couple of years been for you? Uh, you're a busy entrepreneur. Um, but here you've been watching your father's legacy reborn after all these years. Pretty exciting, huh? Uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's really fun. Um, you know, my father wanted to go to the edges of accepted science and shine a flashlight and push the border of mainstream science further out. Mm -hmm. So um, there has been a resurgence of interest in him and his work. And I, I think it's great because um, you know, these are troubled times and this is one of the most important questions we can come up with. And I heard something fascinating to that point the other day on the radio, I was listening to ESPN and they're talking about one of the guys is saying, Hey, uh, will the champions from 19, from 2020 need an asterisk by the name? Cause they're going to have shortened seasons and all that. And the other guy just says out of the blue, you know what? The only thing you need to know about 2020 is that the Pentagon has admitted that UFOs exist. Right. And I, they, they'd bubble down into a talk about NFL and NBA on ESPN. And had it not been for COVID, probably would have been talked about a lot more, the recent disclosures by the Pentagon. So it's a very interesting time. And, you know, my father's day, the Air Force was always saying, no, there's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. And discrediting it and disinformation. And now you have the Navy saying, you know what? We've seen hundreds of these things. We're scared that they pose a threat to our aviators. We don't know how to report them and we could use some help. That is just such a sea change in attitude. And you have to wonder, is the Navy operating on their own? But then the Pentagon came out and confirmed it. So the yeah. Navy and the Pentagon at this point are in favor of the big D word disclosure. Mm -hmm. um, so is that emblematic of all the military? You know, we tend to think of the government as when we think about UFOs and disclosure, we think of the government as this monolithic block working in concert and rationally. And once you get some of these papers under the Freedom of Information Act, et cetera, you realize there are lots of all sorts of little fiefdoms and warring factions, even in the same branch of the same service. Um, and people have different beliefs, people have different petty things and all sorts of things, and they're not working all together. But at least the Navy and the Pentagon have an interest to let people know that they've seen hundreds of these things, that they're verifying the footage from the Nimitz and other places, um, and and the and you know and disclosing this to New York Times. It's just utterly fascinating to me. I mean, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And they're fitting all fighter jets with infrared sensors because apparently 
you can only see some of these with infrared. So literally, yeah. they're retrofitting every jet fighter they have with infrared sensors to be yeah. able to detect unidentified right. and, objects. Yeah, uh, I, and I'm friends with Kevin Day, who was the radar operator on the Princeton right by the Nimitz. And he's the guy that saw them on the radar for a week. People saw them through binoculars, and they have them recorded on the cameras from the, from the fighter jets. Hunt, I mean, this is, this is one of the best documented cases there is. And I've known Kevin, and he's, you know, he's a 20-year Navy veteran. And he is not, he didn't believe in UFOs before this stuff. And he's still, you can see, he's still struggling to sort of fit this into his worldview and to, and to come to grips with it, the enormity of what he's seen. Um, and he now wants to mount an expedition and have us go out to the same spot in the ocean with a ship with scientists and a lot of scientific instruments to see if we can detect anything. Be happy to help you with that one, by the way. Cool. Um, I absolutely get in contact with me. Uh, if, you know, be happy to, to, to give you a couple arms and a couple legs for that one. Um, what's on the drawing board for you as we move into 2020? So for me, um, I kind of have two different lives. I'm a CFO with a lot of startups and I do a lot of financial consulting. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, so I'm a CFO and I'm in UFOs. Um, so um, I'm starting to write a book about my family, my father and, and my take on UFOs. I'm doing a lot of lecturing about UFOs. And for anybody out there, I will lecture on UFOs anywhere in the world in any language with a two month notice. In any language? Any language. Um, I, I, I spoke in Argentina in Spanish in November. I'm gonna speak in Italian in October in Rome, COVID God's willing. Um, yes. And I could do French and Japanese tomorrow. Um, and any other language, I just need two months and I'll be able to do the, the presentation for an hour. You like a challenge, don't you, Paul? Yeah, yeah, I know a language guy. I think that's just kind of fun. Plus, when I was invited to go to Argentina, they said, okay, we'll have an interpreter for you. Well, that cuts my time in half and they don't hear my voice and you don't create that connection with the audience. Yeah. So I said, look, I can pronounce Spanish pretty well. I just need to make sure I have a really good translation of my speech and, that, and I had three native speakers go over it, and then I need to sprinkle in idioms and local phrasing, and, and in the case of Argentina, a very different pronunciation, yeah. um, and then just read it in a very animated fashion and make that connection with the audience. Yeah, there's very few people like you. I have one other friend um, who has that uncanny ability to retain vast amounts of information and process it and repeat. It's very difficult. I can't do it. That's not me. But that's Paul Heineck. And Paul, it was a pleasure visiting with you. Um, stay in touch. Absolutely. And I wish you all the best luck moving forward. Uh, send me some more, send me whatever you got, whenever you have it. Always happy to take a look at some of the uh, work that you're doing. And of course, the work that your father did so eloquently for so many years. And he's an icon. And, uh, and it's just great to see that, you know, people are beginning to notice him again. And you're doing a, a great Thing in, in carrying the torch for him. So thank you very much from all of us who've been following him for so many years. My pleasure, Kelly. Have a great night. Take care, buddy. Folks, that is Paul Hynek. I need you to do a couple of things. Actually, I need you to do three things. I need you to share this. I need you to like it. Okay, four things. Comment and absolutely subscribe. We're going to bring more guys. Well, there's only one Paul Hynek, right? Really, there is. But we're going to try to get some other great guests and some great topics as we move forward. This has been the Phenomenal Report. I'm Kelly Kleiman. Have a good night.
That was really good, mister. 